Mark. Turn to the book of Mark. We, uh, for the summer, have been focusing on Jesus and uh, imagining what his life is looking like, the way he's living, uh, the actions that he takes. And we've been asking the question, what does that mean for us? How do we also emulate, follow his example, and, uh, and do that in real intentional ways? And so, uh, if you haven't been here the last couple of weeks, we've kind of been lingering in the book of Mark a little bit. We've decided we're going to go throughout all of the Gospels to demonstrate what he was doing and how he was living. Sorry, this keeps cutting out a little. Uh, but what uh, we've noticed is we've been sitting in this book of Mark for about the last four or five weeks. Uh, several weeks back, I taught on the teaching of ways in which uh, God uh, spoke and blessed and provided for 5,000 people, and then shortly after, another 4,000 people. We talked about, uh, last week, Kevin described spheres of relationships that we're in, and we looked at Mark 3 and what that means and how we're supposed to be intentional in each of our <clears throat> relationships. A couple weeks back, I spoke on the viral movement of the gospel found in Mark 7, that you have a group of people who had no knowledge of who God was just months before when one person in that region is healed. And then a couple months later, the feeding of 4,000 in which about fifteen to 20,000 people were present. And you see the gospel move from one person to 20,000 people in a matter of months. This amazing spread of the gospel. This week we're going to look at Mark chapter 8, but in order for us to get there, I'd love for you to open your Bible in Mark chapter 1, and we're going to just jog through the healings in chapter 1 through 7 to get us to the point where we look at the healing in chapter 8. So what I want to do this morning, a little bit different than normal, I just want to focus on a few takeaways that we can bring from our particular passage as well as what we can see as we kind of jog through the scriptures to Mark Eight. So if you notice in Mark 1, if, you're, if you've turned there, if you're just looking, this won't be on the screen, so you'll need to just kind of flip through. You see multiple healings take place. Uh, you see Jesus heal a man with an unclean spirit. Uh, then later, and just below that, it, it's about him healing multiple people. In fact, the text says that uh, the whole city was gathered together with him, and he healed person after person after person. We also see that he cleanses a leper. And all of this is taking place right in chapter 1. I'm going to make obvious observations as we go through this little section. Obvious observation number one. Jesus is good at healing. Okay? Right from the, the beginning, it, we have to be aware. Very simple. He's pretty good at this. Okay? We move to chapter 2. Uh, Jesus heals a paralytic. And one of the things you notice about this healing is that the first thing he does is he forgives him of sins. The man comes in, uh, they they bring him to Jesus, and Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. At that point, it appears as if uh, the situation, I've healed the man of his uh, sins, we'll just uh, move on, and then he notices the crowd doubting. Seriously, anybody can say your sins are forgiven and nothing changes. Come on. And so Jesus, for the sake of the community around, healed the man. And so you see this picture of Jesus being concerned 
with obvious observation number two, with being concerned with both the temporal and eternal healing. That he is so focused, not just on his uh, eternal destination, not just on the spiritual uh, details of the man's life, but is also focused on his circumstantial and temporal situation. He's saying that you need to be healed physically, perhaps even emotionally. And Jesus is intent on changing that. And you see him deal in many times in the scriptures physically with someone as well as spiritually. I would even argue that in uh, Luke, I think it's around chapter 10, Jesus is with the, uh, the ten lepers. They come up to him and they say, Jesus, will you cleanse us? And the text says that he heals all ten of them and they leave. He's done. That was it. He healed them and then let them go. Until the one returned. Okay, I will give you an additional healing. I'll heal your soul. And so there's this sense that Jesus cares about the temporal as well as the eternal condition of a person. If you go to chapter 5, I want to point out another obvious observation. Uh, Jesus, the text says, heals a demon-possessed man. We looked at that a few weeks ago. And then, then he heals a woman with an issue of bleeding. And then later heals Jairus' daughter. Obvious observation number three. Healing is not just a physical reality, but is emotional and spiritual in nature as well. What you see in this text so clearly is that the demon-possessed man is in need of emotional healing. The text says that he's sitting there, in, in like whether it's mental illness, there's this, this sense of him being out of his mind, the text says. And then later you see him sitting there, and the text is very clear that he's in his right mind. That God restored him mentally and emotionally and physically. That he was concerned not just about the physical, but also the emotional and the spiritual. The woman in bleeding, we mentioned this several months back. The thing that I find most captivating about that healing isn't that she touched him and was healed. The part that I find most captivating is in the midst of his busy schedule as he's moving from thing to thing, the text makes very clear that Jesus was touched in the middle of this crowd. He notices it, turns to her, and then the story says that he listened to her whole story. That he was there to listen and receive and be for as long as it took to hear her whole story. The fact that she expressed probably deep emotional pain, neglect from people, being ostracized from a community, not being able to worship, being considered unclean. No one else touch her because that might make them unclean in some way and they wouldn't be able to go to the temple as well. And so Jesus sits in this space with her of emotional and physical and spiritual healing. Jesus is concerned about the physical but the emotional and spiritual as well. Don't reduce your understanding of what healing is to just the physical. Expand it to all the other ways in which we are healed. Chapter 6 gives us observation, obvious observation number 4. It says this at the very beginning of chapter 6, verse 7, that Jesus sends out the apostles and he gives them authority 
sends them out by two by two, and he asks them to clean, uh, to send out unclean spirits, to do healings, to help people. Obvious observation number four, healing is an essential part of the discipleship process. Essential part of the discipleship process. Now, some of you with more charismatic leanings right now are thinking to yourself, preach it, brother. Like, it's been a while, we haven't heard this, we need to hear a little bit more of this, that yes, Jesus is willing and interested in healing us in every aspect of our lives. Those of you that uh, tend to only acknowledge two members of the Trinity at this moment are thinking to yourself, whoa, slow down a little bit, Um, you're getting carried away, let's not go too far back in the Gospels. Come on, I mean, this is 2016. We're in a whole different era, a whole different season of life. But I would say that uh, healing is still a necessary part of discipleship. It's impossible for us to acknowledge or not acknowledge that healing is so multifaceted and so needed. We would, honestly, it would take hours for us to recall person after person after situation after situation from this community alone in which we've seen God do amazing healing. There are people who have expressed for the first time a love of Jesus in this space. And their lives have been radically changed. It's a miracle of healing. There have been people that we have watched recover from deep emotional wounds. And their lives have been transformed and healed. There have been people that have had amazing relational brokenness, whether it's in families or in personal interaction with other people, and reconciliation has happened, restoration has happened, healing has happened. And then even in our midst, we have seen up close and personal multiple stories, powerful stories of lives being touched physically where the person goes from a space of probably not going to live much longer to a place where they're full of life. And God brought amazing, amazing healing. God is the author of healing. And we'll do it however he sees fit. But I think it's important for us to recognize it is an essential part of discipleship. So those obvious observations are intended. Mark chapter 8. So Mark chapter 8, if you would turn to chapter, or verse uh, 22 through 26. Mark eight twenty-two through 26. We want to look at another little healing that takes place in this passage. It says this, And they came to Bethsaida, and some people came to him, a blind man, and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes, And laid his hands on him. He asked him, do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see men, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes, and sight was restored. And he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home, saying, do not even enter the village. A healing. A healing takes place. This is probably, at first glance, an odd healing to choose. We're talking about the subject of healing. Why would we choose one in which it, it feels like things didn't quite go as expected? 
You have a blind man brought to Jesus. Jesus takes him by the hand, leads him out of the village, stands there, spits in his face, puts his hand in his eyes, and then the man, he asks the man, do you see? Tell me what you see. At that point, I'd probably be saying something like, you just spit in my face. What do you expect me to see, right? It, 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 for sure, it's going to be cloudy. For sure, it's going to look weird. But instead, what you see is the man express that I see what appears to be trees walking around. So Jesus touches his eyes again so that he see everything clearly. This passage, I don't know if it does this for you, but it's one of those that gives me pause and it makes me become fascinated with the Scriptures. Why did it happen this way? It seems as if Jesus didn't quite have what it took to do it the first time, so he had to take a second crack at it. Or maybe the man's blindness was so stubborn that Jesus kind of underestimated the kind of power needed to accomplish the healing. But I'd like to argue there's something far more at stake here in this moment. I'm persuaded that there is much more at play. And if you look in the text right before, you start to see that in many ways this is a living illustration that Jesus is so intentional about creating. So Jesus had uh, just been with his disciples. They had this significant conversation He had fed 5,000 people, which would have been approximately 20,000 people. A period of a couple months goes by, maybe not even that long, and he he comes to a group of 4,000 people and he feeds all of them, and again, far more than that. And the disciples, when he asks them, hey, do you have food to feed the 4,000? They're like, "Ah, no, we don't. I have no idea where we're going to get it from. I mean, if I was Jesus, I would have been like, guys, can you just rewind a couple months? More people back then, less people now. Five loaves of bread, two fish back then. I don't need anything to do this, right? Why are you doubting? Why are you confused? Do you not yet see who I am? Do you not get the bigger picture? In fact, if you look at verse 17 and 18, he says this, To them, do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? And then this miracle takes place right after this significant conversation with the disciples. And there's this moment where the blind man comes... And I would imagine that they're probably walking along the path. The disciples, the disciples are having kind of like a situation with themselves. They're talking to one another and they're probably saying something along the lines of, did you just hear what Jesus said? He said, do you have eyes but fail to see? Come on. Like, what does he even know what he's talking about? You can't have eyes and not see. That makes no sense. Jesus, being perceptive, probably knows exactly what's going on behind him. It's to this moment a blind man comes. And I can just imagine the scene. He, he spits on his face, touches his eyes, tells me, what do you see? And the man goes, I see what appear to be trees walking around. 
Jesus probably at that moment, if I was anything like him, I would have looked at the disciples and gone, having eyes but failing to see maybe? Could that be what's happening here in this moment? It's possible, isn't it? The number of times in our lives we have eyes and yet fail to see. That we say we have faith and yet feel to understand the significance of it. Let's say we understand what grace is about and then act in ways that are not about grace at all. Instead, we people earn favor when we have received grace. Having eyes but failing to see, Jesus took a moment to give them a, a real-life illustration of what it means to be about healing. What I want to do is just give us a couple of takeaways from this particular passage that I think might hopefully resonate with us. Takeaway number one from this story of the healing. Many times your process of growth and healing isn't really about you. I know you might find that shocking. I know so much of my life, probably I live through the tendency to believe what happened to me or about me at some level. I somehow am persuaded that I am in some way the center of the universe when in fact I am far small in the midst of this large, large story that we all find ourselves in. And this man's healing wasn't entirely about him. I mean, certainly the man's life changed. He went from being completely blind to having clear sight. He could see everything. But I think this healing was actually about the disciples. Have you ever noticed that in your world? Have you ever noticed something that you're experiencing, perhaps at this very moment, that if you had to be honest with yourself, you realize is a part of a much bigger story than just your own? That you're about something that's beyond that. It might be that the the very healing that's taken place in your life wasn't really about you. I mentioned earlier that I've seen miracles in this community up close and personal. And while the life of the person or the individual was radically altered, if I had to be honest, I would say the lives of everyone around that person were altered far more. That the ripple effect of healing that takes place in someone's life socially, emotionally, physically, spiritually, it far more reverberates than what happens in just that individual. Don't fail to recognize that perhaps the healing you're currently experiencing is part of a bigger story. I would even go as far as to say, don't, don't fail to realize that the healing you presently aren't experiencing might be a part of a bigger story and might not be about you either. That the thing you're enduring or having to go through right now is a part of a much larger story and people are growing and learning and being changed because of it. Takeaway number two. Never assume that spiritual healing is always the greatest priority in someone's life at a given moment. Now before you question me, call me a heretic in this moment. Um... Jesus had one priority for the disciples, right? 
I think that priority was a spiritual one. He wanted them to see something that they failed to recognize when he healed this blind man. But I would also say Jesus seemed to place great priority on the physical or the temporal healing. There's no indication in the text, no indication in the story that after Jesus healed him, he said, now, hey, before you go, let me tell you the four spiritual laws. No indication that he handed him a track after it took place. No indication that he mentioned, hey, lest you don't get the full picture, I am the Messiah. I haven't told many people yet, but I'm going to tell you. I'm the Messiah. I can change your entire life. He just heals the man. He deals with the temporal. He deals with the circumstance. He deals with the station in life that person finds himself. And then he lets him go. I don't want you to hear me wrong that I'm not saying that the spiritual isn't vital. You all know that. But what I am saying is it's not okay if the temporal is ignored. Addressing the conditions of a person in need of healing can actually move the gospel from a place of a disconnected religion to a place of transformation, a place of relationship, a place of healing. In fact, Martin Luther King Jr. would say that any religion that professes to be concerned with the souls of men and is not concerned about the slums that damn them, the economic conditions that strangle them, and the social conditions that cripple them is a spiritually morbid religion awaiting burial. I think we are to never assume that the spiritual healing is always the greatest priority in a person's life at a given moment. And I believe, in many ways, that this idea is significant for the moment in time that our nation is presently in, where we have incredible racial unrest and violence. My heart has been so heavy over the past week as I've watched incredible destruction take place in the lives of so many people. Mothers and fathers, brothers and sisters weeping, over the loss of innocent life. There is incredible racial tension. Just yesterday, I was downtown at the uh, rally. There's a rally downtown in front of the courthouse uh, at noon yesterday. And we, as a community, we, gra- we gathered to, to lift up the events of the last week. A hundred of us present. We're listening and we're praying and we're spending time together in a peaceful protest about what is happening across our nation. And even in the midst of that, a protester moved in among the crowd and he said, F Black Lives Matter. Incredible violence is being executed on a minority group in ways that are so damaging. Neutrality and silence, I think, of the church is deafening at times. Martin Luther said, I agree with Dante that the hottest places in hell are reserved for those who in a period of moral crisis maintain their neutrality. We are in need of, as a 
Christian, what we are in need of as Christians is a perspective change. A radical altering of how we feel and realizing that it's not somebody else's problem, it's actually our problem. Uh-oh. 16 years ago, my life expanded in a way I was not prepared for. Uh, I welcomed the first of four children into my life. If you have ever experienced reality, if you've ever welcomed a life into your family, um, words cannot begin to express how one feels. My eyes were opened. The world no longer revolved around me. I understood God in a completely different way. I understood what it meant when he actually says that he loves his children. Never got that in all its fullness. I knew I was loved by my parents deeply, but something happens when your kid is sitting before you and you have this love that comes from a place, I don't even know where it exists, but it comes from this place that is so deep and so full. It's like this reservoir of love that you didn't even know you had. And uh, each child along the way has only, you can ask any parent, like you thought you like were full. And, and I remember when child number two came, I was like, I don't know what to do. Because there's no way I could possibly love them as much as. I've used up all my love. I'm, I don't have any left. And then child two comes along and it's like God goes, well, here's a whole nother bucket of love. And then you're like, I didn't, I didn't even know that was possible. And so you begin to feel something you never did before. And it's really, like I said, so hard to capture the ways in which that increases your awareness of love and of God and of each other. But about seven years ago, we had our fourth child. And in honesty, I was not prepared for the radical change in per- perspective that would come as a result. Uh, When my second daughter was placed in my arms, it felt much the same as before. However, the experience came with this, like, new set of lenses. Well, I think I've always had a strong concern for justice and a special heart for the marginalized. In no way was I prepared to be absolutely devastated and broken over issues of racism. I did not know that that would come. In the years since her birth, nothing could have prepared me for the feelings I have now about racial injustice in our country. These events and stories aren't abstract anymore. They are flesh and blood. I think we know there's no room for neutrality. I view my world in completely different ways, and I know with certainty that race will play a role in the way my daughter is treated. And that, honestly, pisses me off. I wish I could say, here are all the answers, and here's the way to solve all of the problems. There's no way any of us can absolutely do that. 
But I would say that we must identify with our brothers and sisters when it comes to racial struggles and injustice. For me, I would even go farther to say that it's no longer a group of people we're ignoring or a situation that we can turn a blind eye to. I would even say that um, there's no way to remain neutral. For me and for others in our community, it is us and our kids that you're dismissing. This is a family of God issue, not a society issue. This is a brothers and sisters in Christ issue. While I don't have all the answers, I do passion is an indicator that we aren't embracing all the implications of the gospel and all that it has for our lives. Scripture says this, if one part of the body of Christ suffers, every part suffers with it. I encourage you to never assume that spiritual healing is always the greatest priority in someone's life at a given moment, but it's the temporal as well as the spiritual. Finally, let me give takeaway number three before we enter into communion. Admit that we need healing. There seems to be one consistent thing throughout all these stories of healing in the Gospel of Mark. And the consistent theme, the person admitted they needed healing. They asked to be healed. They touched Jesus. They asked to be made to see, to walk. They begged Jesus on behalf of others for healing. And what you see, I think, in the midst of all of it is a certain desperateness and a certain humility that comes with it. And I think we need that same desperateness. So I want to encourage us this morning with the following. And we're going to take communion. Uh, communion is a symbol of many things. It's a symbol of freedom that's found in Christ. It's a symbol of what was done on the cross where Christ shed His blood for you and for me to give freedom to us from sin, to give us a relationship with God. But I also would say that it also gives us a new understanding of family. That there's a way that we see family completely different than we did before. And this morning, what I want to encourage us to do during our time of communion, there'll be a station in each of those corners. That as you go to take communion, we're also going to have a group of people sitting kind of by those doors over there that have agreed to pray with anyone that feels in some way that spiritual, emotional, physical, mental, and any, any type of healing you need, we want to pray specifically for you individually and ask God to move in your life in real ways. And then the other thing I'm going to ask is for anybody else that doesn't feel the need to go and specifically be prayed for. I'm just going to ask that we together collectively pray for our nation. We pray for our brothers.